0: After a notable career as a dancer, today's guest moved first into dance administration and later gained enormous expertise in real estate issues for -for not-for-profits, which led her to the leadership of the new 42nd Street 20 years ago, where she has played an integral and still ongoing role in the revitalization of what was once the seamiest block in the Times Square area. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome the president of the new 42nd Street, Cora Khan.:
1: And I'm very happy to be here, Howard.
0: I guess I will start by asking about the fact that there are people who still have a nostalgia for the old 42nd Street, even to the point that this week there's a film festival down at, I think, Anthology Film Archives, which is focusing on the kinds of movies that would have been seen on 42nd Street oh. if they just hadn't <laughs> bothered to clean it up. Oh. Is, do you still find that's, that now it's become romanticized?
1: Well, probably a bit because, uh, you know, actually actually 42nd Street has been the new 42nd Street for a good part of those 20 years since I've been here, since the new victory actually opened, I guess it is about 15 years ago. So there's a whole generation that has no idea. What you're talking about when you talk about naughty body scenes. I'm talking about
0: exploitation films. I'm talking about I mean, it's funny that you still have people like David Letterman who make nightly jokes about hookers in Times Square. You know, that was the image of the old forty second street, which has been pretty much eradicated unless I'm missing something. Um but yeah, it was certainly when I was a teenager if you were in Times Square and you were going to a theater or a restaurant, you you avoided walking
1: down the 42nd Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. Absolutely. People did avoid it. People not only were you, if you were a tourist or a visitor to the theater district, avoid it, but on a daily basis, the commuters from the Port Authority on 8th Avenue and 42nd or to Grand Central walked on 43rd or 41st Street to avoid Avoid walking on 42nd Street. And so it's really been transformed because now we actually have more pedestrians than the sidewalk, which is a pretty wide sidewalk on 42nd Street, can hold at times of the day and particularly the evening. So it's really been transformed in so many ways. But I think it has been romanticized. By, by people like Jimmy Breslin who would, would write about 42nd Street that he loved with all the girls, girls, girls clubs and the adult uses and the world's largest adult sex supermarket in the world which was on the western end of 42nd near 8th Avenue where you went into this white box of a big store and you could get – a wagon, you know, like a supermarket a, a shopping, right, a cart. shopping cart, or you can get a basket, depending on how many <laughs> depending you know on your needs. Triple X DVDs, while well, they were probably they CDs were, at that time, no, no, probably
0: VHS tapes at that VHS time.
1: VHS tapes, actually, they were VHS tapes at that time. Not
0: that I would know.
1: I went in. No, I went in <laughs> with another woman, and immediately they knew that we were odd because they called out from the back where they were watching over the floor. Can we help you? And they knew we didn't really. We were just spying on them. <laughs>
0: The change in 42nd Street is partially correctly attributed to Disney's decision to open the new Amsterdam. But that's really far from the whole story. Certainly, Can you explain what you were charged with when in 1990 you were hired to be the president of new 42nd Street? Because it sure didn't happen overnight.
1: No, it didn't happen overnight. Actually um – well, I'll answer your question and then I'll maybe uh, riff a little bit. But uh, the charge for what was established for a nonprofit organization, we're a nonprofit organization. The new 42nd Street is a 501c3 not for profit organization, like um, orchestras, museums, theater companies around the country. And uh, the charge for what was called by the city and the state. The 42nd Street Entertainment Corporation, that was the name we inherited um, when I came to work in 1990. It was created by the city and the state, and it was an empty vessel, and it was in 501C3. The first thing the board of the new 42nd Street did, which was the board of the 42nd Street Entertainment Corporation, for about 10 seconds was change the name from 42nd Street Entertainment Corporation because in 1990, that could mean Anything that was happening on that street. Including your supermarket. (laughs) Including the supermarket and the girls, girls, girls clubs and the buddy booths and everything else that was happening up and down uh, the street and up and down in the buildings. So um, our charge was to find new uses for seven of the block's historic theaters. Most of these theaters were built between 1900 and 1920, the victory being actually the 1900 uh, end of that uh, 20-year span. And uh, it was not expected. A couple of things were not expected. One, it was not expected that most of the theaters would be put back in theatrical use. It was expected that they would be transformed into something else. Um, An example, actually two of the theaters are being used for something else – one is the the Empire, which was moved uh, 180 feet to the west uh, after a year of constructing the transit system that moved it. So the pigeons that roosted in the windows of the Empire Theater never budged during that move. It was qu- quite extraordinary when it happened. The Empire is the lobby for 25-screen multiplex American um, the AMC movie, AMC yeah, movies, American multi cinemas, and Street. on the south side of Forty Second Street. But you go into this historic theater, and you can see the proscenium, and you can see the dome, and you can. Your escalators take you right cut you right through the proscenium arch, so that's one. There's another theater, the uh, Liberty, also on the south side, that uh, was leased. From the new 42nd Street, it's one of our seven theaters, by Forest City Ratner, and they have recently leased it, to the best of my knowledge, to a, a big restaurant, a big, big restaurant. So it will be used as a restaurant – although you'll see the theater, I believe. Oh, that's you have to. The
0: space that's sort of hidden that no one's really seen.
1: Well, it's been seen. Um, the Angel Project, which is part of the Lincoln Center Festival a few years ago, actually opened up that theater and there was beautiful Deborah Warner Deborah kind Warner, of was the curator. Shaw well, this project. Mm-hmm. was – oh, that actually no. was an earlier use. Oh. That was the Wasteland, the T.S. Eliot mm. Wasteland. But a couple of years later, Deborah Warner curated in the city of New York from Governor's Island to 42nd Street and everything in between – A walking tour called The Angel Project and it uh, did uh, permit the public into the Liberty so you could see it. It's now about to be a big restaurant. But
0: relatively seen by a very finite few over Few, over the past few years.
1: What was expected when we came to work with the mission of finding new uses was that the buildings on the corner, the crossroads corner of Times Square, the 7th Avenue Broadway corner of 42nd Street, that the office buildings that now are are built, but they were expected to be built between 1990 and 1994 – We're going to drive the development of 42nd Street. However, when we came to work in 1990, the real estate market, which had really was a boom market in the 80s, particularly the middle and late 80s, suddenly deflated along with a kind of a mini recession here. And so those buildings were not going up. And the theaters that brought 42nd Street into its position as an famous, even infamous block at the beginning of the 20th century actually began the reclaiming and the reinvention of 42nd Street before these office buildings have gone up. And so the victory was first. The New Amsterdam was 18 months later. The Ford Center was right behind the New Amsterdam. And so the theaters that made 42nd Street, 42nd Street at the beginning of the 20th century actually remade And refashioned it. The real estate was so sturdy. The use was so strong for theater that actually three theaters opened before anybody began to even put a shovel in the ground around 1998, 99, when the Condé Nast building was begun, 98, I think.
0: Hmm. I'm going to loop back to this. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about you because – Your original intention uh, for a career didn't seem to be revitalizing the seamiest part of town. You were a dancer. Yes. Had you always wanted to dance from the time you were a child and did all of that rigorous training? Yes. So so tell me a little about your dance career.
1: Um, I wanted to dance from the time I was really young um, and ended up being so young that the School of American Ballet wasn't taking six-year-olds, so I ended up in a modern dance studio and went from that studio to – I was directed by my dance teacher at that studio, who was a founding member of Martha Graham's company, uh, to the Metropolitan Opera Ballet School. So by the time I was 12 or 13, I had had a fair amount of modern dance training I did well at it. I had some ballet training there 's a photograph of me with six classmates, everybody on point at the bar with our names on our leotards and everybody 's in pink ballet shoes, except me i 'm in black point shoes because black was more stir- didn 't get dirty as fast, and so you could use it longer and also, I was wearing you know black leotards, I guess in modern dance class, so there 's five of us in pink point shoes, and me in my black point shoes, so that obviously i wasn 't going to be a ballet dancer. I uh, went to the High School of Performing Arts on 46th Street, which meant I came from Brooklyn from the New Kirk Avenue station, which is now in Ditmas Park, but we didn't know from Ditmas Park back then, to 42nd Street and sometimes changed to the local and sometimes just ran four blocks to 46th Street. So 42nd Street was in my life as a very young teenager Um, and um, so I was already commuting to Times Square from, from a very early age. How much of a professional career, how long did you dance for? I danced professionally from the time I was in high school, early in high school, until after my second child was born. So I danced uh, right until 1971, 72. And at that point, I didn't realize I was deciding to stop, but i that's what happened.
0: And you said you weren't going to be a ballerina.
1: No, I was a modern dancer. I worked with yep. modern dance companies, Norman Walker, Helen Tamiris. Pearl Lang is where I started out with a quite well-known modern dance company at that time. Was a sort of a sidebar to the Graham Company. Paul Taylor was in that company. Harvey Lichtenstein, who founded BAM, was in that company. Uh, a number of other very notable people. And here I was doing a child's role in that company. So I started out on stage at a very young life, hmm. at a very young time. And um, I danced professionally for – Nearly twenty years.
0: Wow!
1: That's Not, no, but probably more like fifteen years. But, but, still, but still, a so long remarkable. time. And I taught. I earned my living by teaching. And what nobody knows is concurrently when I, with dancing. That's your the dancing. only because he didn't get paid to dance hmm. hardly at all. You know, there was no money, so we performed at the YMHA and we performed at Hunter College, and there were no theaters for dance, and we toured some, but there wasn't much money to be made as a dancer.
0: Hmm. And at no point did you think about being a Broadway dancer or you just were working in a totally different style?
1: I auditioned once, again when I was in high school, probably a freshman, for Jerry Robbins' Peter Pan musical. I went without my parents knowing because I knew about it because all the kids in school knew. And when you went to the audition, the stage manager had his hand on the door. And if you hit his arm, you weren't allowed in because they were looking for short little dancers for the Indians. And
0: <laughs> Did you make the cut?
1: I, he From the house, he said, I think I had two – I have dark hair. You can't see this on the, on the podcast. But I, have, I had two braids and there were somersaults and funny steps, which I remember sort of and he said from the house this I got to have. He did want me to be in the show.
0: This being Jerry Robbins. Jerry. Wow.
1: And um I told him the story many many years later and my mother they were going to be rehearsing and starting the show in LA and she was not about to let me out of the house out of high school and so I didn't I didn't make that show. I didn't do that show, but it's a story that I once in a while remember. <laughs> that was about it. <laughs>
0: So as you've already said, you danced up until the time you had your second child. How did you hmm. go? After. After having your second naked, child. Nearly
1: naked, as a matter of fact, a year later, yes.
0: Hmm. How did you go from being a dancer to, in relatively short order, being the manager, I don't know the precise title, Executive director. Executive director of Elliott Feld's dance company.
1: I think the first title was Administrator, but it, it turned into Executive Director. Um, Elliot was in Pearl Ang's company and also went to the high school of performing arts, so I knew him. And my husband knew him because he had been the – my husband had been the production stage manager for a show that Elliot had been in as a young kid called Sandhog. And so we both knew Elliot. He was at our wedding. He had a doctor in our neighborhood, so he would stop by once in a while and ring the doorbell and come up and see us. And our little baby children. And um, he had had a company that started out at BAM from 69 to 71. And then all those companies, that stopped in 71. And somewhere around 72 or 73, I ran into the head of the Rockefeller Arts Program, a man named Howard Klein, who said, how's Elliot? I guess he knew we were friendly. And I said, he wants a company. And Howard said, I'd like to be introduced to him so we managed elliot and howard to meet and they talked for about a year and one day elliot came by the house the apartment and said i'm meeting with howard tomorrow i have an idea for a ballet we've been talking for a year i won't go into that story and about why it took a year and would you come with me tomorrow when i'm meeting with howard so i went with elliot the next day they were at they were near Rockefeller center on sixth avenue and we went up to Howard's office and Howard said, okay, we'll get you a grand. I think it was $475,000, which was a lot of money, to start a company. Um, and who are you going to get to do it with, with – who's going to help you run the company? And Elliot said, I don't know. And Howard said, how about Cora? I was just sitting there. I was an uh, amicus curia. I was friend of the court. And Elliot and I went out to the uh, stage door deli. I had a turkey on a ride with Russian – and we both kept saying, I don't know, and I ended up running his company. That's the story. Now – I never – I did, had never been in an office. You would alluded
0: a few moments ago to your husband. and We yes. should acknowledge that your husband, Bernard Gersten, at the time was the associate producer with Joseph Papp at the New the York, New York Sh- Shakespeare Festival. So certainly you were not unaware of the challenges of running an institution. But that's from chatting with with Bernie and and his cohorts. Had you just absorbed enough? No. Because this was really
1: on-the-job training. A couple of things about that. First of all, someday if I ever get to sit down, I'll do a cross-stitch thing that says guilelessness serves. Naivete serves. Not knowing what you were getting into probably is a very good thing because if you really knew – you probably wouldn't go there. But, they, but Bernie was a factor because here I was starting out with Elliot and I had never been in an office. I had had typing in high school but it was my lowest grade because I wasn't interested. So uh, I said to Bernie, what's the budget? This is absolutely true. And he said, you add up all your expenses in one column. Everything you think it's going to cost you and then you take that Rockefeller money and any other money you think you might get, box office income and anybody else might give you some money. And if the expense column is larger than the money that's coming in, that's called the income column, you put a bracket around the difference. That's called a deficit. If you have a deficit, you have to find the money to make up for that shortfall and that's how I learned what a budget was.
0: And that saved you three years of a graduate arts management program. If they even had (laughs) such programs. I mean those programs are
1: rather – yes, they were probably just starting because yes, Bernie was teaching at Columbia or Yale at the time. So I learned on the job. Not a bad way to do it. I learned everything on the job. Now, so maybe I don't know anything.
0: <laughs> well, you seem to know a lot because as I alluded to in the introduction, you relatively soon had to start dabbling in real estate. Um you, because it sounds like the company was established in the mid-70s and didn't have a home and didn't have a home. You had studios That you found ultimately.
1: We we rented studios and I always had rosin in my purse (laughs) because it was a ballet company. I always carried rosin around. We were renting – we were a vagabond, gypsy company that had no home. So we went from studio to studio depending on what we could afford and what was available.
0: So how did you find your first home?
1: We – oh, okay. We were looking at space relentlessly uh, and we're looking at space on 18th Street – or 17th Street, but it was 18th Street where we parked the car. Uh, and we were looking at space where there was another dance company in the building, and when, when we got out, we saw a sign saying, Tennis School on the first floor. And then this was the mid-70s, 76, and lots of floors for lease in that building. And we said, if there are tennis courts, maybe there's a big footprint in that building. So we wrote down the number. And I called the next day and I got the landlord and he said he had four floors for rent and the floors were 200 feet long and 100 feet wide with no columns. Column-free space, such a rare commodity in New York. We usually have columns every 25 feet. And it had a center wall down the 100. So it was 50 by 200 on one side and 50 by 200 on the other side. A little less than that 200 because it was 17,500 square feet. And we rented the top floor because we thought it had skylights. It was beautiful. It was raw factory space. It had been a belt factory. This is what was happening. It was 19th Street and Broadway. That was the ladies' the garment, you know, what do you call it? Ladies' mile, I guess. It was hmm. Really, garment workers, and that industry was over. So these floors were all empty. And Ruby Weiner, who was a landlord, made leather coats on the third floor, hmm. and that's what he did.
0: The, you said there was already one dance company in the building.
1: Not in this building, another building, oh. around
0: the corner. Oh, I see. So
1: when we came back you, to the so car – So you
0: pioneered this building?
1: We were the first ones in the building besides Ruby Weiner and the guys selling razor blades and batteries on the first floor and I forget who else. Lace. Well,
0: ultimately, this building became a very well-known building in the theatrical industry and the dance industry because it ultimately became a beehive for companies – had you been part of the effort to buy the building and convert it to more studios and more spaces for creativity?
1: No, and yes. Not initially. What happened is we were there. Uh, then Misha Brishnikov came to work with Elliot on the ballet that Elliot choreographed for him. And when Ballet Theatre needed a new home, Misha directed the company to Eight Ninety and to Mr. Weiner, Ruby Weiner, who still owned it, and. At that same time, around 77, my husband brought Michael Bennett, who was the director and choreographer uh, of A Chorus Line, and my husband was the associate producer at the Shakespeare Festival, and they were friendly. And my husband, Bernard Gerstin, who I call Bernie, uh, said, come see what Elliot and Cora found. And so Michael came and... Uh, he said, oh, Cora, I want one. So I went to Ruby Weiner, <laughs> Mr. Weiner, and I said, I have a friend who wants a floor. And there was one floor left in the building at that point. And, and Ruby Weiner said, I want to sell the building. So Michael bought the building. And then he brought in the costume shop and the hat maker and the boot maker, Jacob, and Woody Shelp, who was a hat maker, and, the, and Robin Wagner and Theoni Aldrich. Robin Wagner being a scenic designer. Theoni Aldridge being a costume designer, both involved with A Chorus Line. And Michael had his own offices and studios on the seventh floor.
0: And so we haven't really said it, 890 Broadway 890. became a real center of For activity.
1: Particularly commercial Broadway and then the two ballet companies side by side in the building.
0: You spoke about when you were dancing, how the places where you were dancing, that you were at, the why you were at Hunter. not yeah. major spaces. So at the Delacorte.
1: <sighs> Every dance company came to the Delacorte at the end of the summer because it was a free dance festival, hmm. and my husband was the producer of that festival, which is where I met him.
0: <laughs> at what point did the Feld Company want more than just a studio, but a venue? And how did you go about? finding
1: that. Uh huh, okay. <laughs> That's a whole hour in itself too. Um the company was performing uh, at the public theater in the Newman Theater, which is a proscenium, an open-ended room, an open-ended not really a proscenium. And from 74 when it began and uh somewhere around and during in 1974 the Shakespeare Festival curiously took on the Beaumont Theatre and what has become the Mitzi Newhouse so that they actually had now an uptown, very big stage, plus the downtown theatre. So having a ballet company come in for three to five weeks a year actually relieved them of some need to fill the downtown theatre. So it was very convenient during those years. So 74 to 78, I think those are roughly the years that the Shakespeare Festival was up at Lincoln Center, we were there. And what we learned was in a 300-seat theater, you could sell out the house but never break even. It wasn't enough seats. So we started – You learned
0: that much about budgeting.
1: Oh, yeah, by that time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, and we said if you had 200 more seats, you could have a long hometown season and potentially break even and have limited financial exposure. We had also done two seasons at City Center with brishnikov Dancing – where you took your life in your hands because the expense was enormous and almost limitless. And if you didn't really sell a lot of tickets in a nearly 3,000 seat theater, you really had tremendous overhead that were fixed costs in a big theater. So the idea of a small theater or roughly 500 seats began to incubate and was in the bottom of a crock pot. And we were out in Iowa at one point touring the Fell company and i spoke to bernie and i said there's beautiful theaters they're building if only new york city had cornfields because they were building these beautiful theaters and he said you know there's a for sale sign on the elgin theater which was a film cinema famous kind of art film house on 19th and 8th and so we he said we actually arranged to come into new york and see it we got in one time and saw the theater and we ended up buying it with a gift that uh, was just, I'm making a very much more complicated story very short if I can. We bought the uh, Joyce for I think it was $275,000 cash hmm. on the corner of 19th and 8th and of course established a theater that we thought would serve not only our company but a great number of small and medium-sized companies because it gave you We created a foundation and an umbrella organization that really helps companies to market and present themselves. And it basically limits your risk and your exposure financially. And you were – So we established that, bought the theater, renovated it, raised the money, nearly killed us. It was much more than we thought we were getting into. We were a small company. We were only four years old when we bought it, maybe five at that point, 79. Yeah, but we saw it in 78. And um, we thought it was a million dollars to fix it up. It was $4 million to fix mm. it up. But it was fixed up, very complicated funding situation with mortgages and guarantees from the federal government, very complicated. And probably I got a lot of muscles doing that, real mm. estate muscles, because we had a UDAG, I won't tell you what that is, and an HUD and a Department of Commerce guarantee and an MCDC loan and and, and a – and uh, something else, I can't remember. So it, was, it, it took a tremendous amount of patience and tenacity to get that theater and create a brand new cultural organization, the Joyce Theater Foundation, which we founded and we, we created the framework, the armature, for a theater for dance that would help dance companies to present themselves and have long hometown seasons with earned income. That were fairly secure, Mm
0: -hmm. and legally, there was the Feld Ballet, yes, and there was the Joyce Theater, and I signed both
1: sides of the contract.
0: And you were I signed both sides of that,
1: yeah. Hmm. And the Feld Company never has enjoyed any benefits; it's favored nations for all companies. So it only got first refusal on time, so it could say when the season was, and then everybody else fell into place. But it paid the same rent, same terms as every other company.
0: I want to ask you about something that took place just for a couple of summers at the Joyce, which was the realization of something that people had talked about and now talk about as if it never happened, which was couldn't there be a place in New York for the best of regional theater to come into New York and have their work seen? And I don't recall if it was two or three summers.
1: It was at least two. American Theater Exchange.
0: American theater exchange where there were i believe two or three shows each summer that mm-hmm. would come from around the country and be brought in and what what happened with that project because it seemed certainly for theater companies as somebody who was working in regional theater at that time it was it, it was almost a competition to see if you could get your work selected to be shown and have that new york showcase that that regional theaters for the most part did not and still do not have
1: well thank you for remembering that because I sometimes forget about it, it but it was it was a huge undertaking and it was the Joyce Theatre Foundation and I was very very involved in in in, in that uh, it was very well funded there was a great deal of money from um, AT&T at the time and um, so that really helped us tremendously. And we brought works from the Mark Taper Forum, from the Yale School of Drama, from the San Diego Rep, from the Berkeley Rep. Um, and I'm trying to think of where else. Uh, from the Alley, Alan Akeborn play. Uh, and I, it probably was two summers. And we used the Joyce. We also used a theater that Michael Bennett had built at 890. And we may even have used a third venue. So we, they were several, sometimes two plays going on at once. It worked but it was here's what's wrong with it let's say the yale rep has a successful play and it's on in november and you want to do it the following summer to recreate when the play closes at yale the scenery gets thrown away the costumes go to some yard somewhere <laughs> and the actors go off to do different things the director may have another gig it's very hard to move something that happened later on Unless it's going to a commercial right, run. Right, because
0: these are not resident companies. It's not like a dance company that brings the work back absolutely. out of the repertory. It's, it's – you have to very, reform.
1: There are very few repertory theater companies in this country, as you probably know better than I Even did. by
0: 1985, they, yeah. many of them started as repertory theaters. But by even by 85, Trinity Rep was probably one of the few left, ART up in Boston.
1: And maybe it's CTC, the Children's Theater Company in yep. Minneapolis, probably had a core company. company. Sure. But um, – so it was—it's very hard to find works that actually they could restage and reset. So that was one of the, I think, biggest challenges. And the other challenge was that it took a tremendous amount of money. And the third thing that became patently clear is it skewed the Joyce Theater organization for about six months of the year from its main purpose, because we had to concentrate so much on the summer activity. Hmm. So here was the staff suddenly turning, you know, 180 degrees and saying, okay, now theater, even though we're still an ongoing dance theater and a service organization. I would say the Joyce Theater is a service organization, happens to be in the shape of a theater.
0: Hmm. And so what was a once and future dream did occur, but it pointed up the challenges of yeah. why this, which is still called for by journalists, by theater companies. Yeah, those are people – What makes it so difficult? Hard.
1: It's very difficult to do in, a, in terms of practicality and the budget challenges are enormous unless you just commit to Berkeley Rep and say, we're going to bring in the first and third play of your season immediately after you do it so that you believe in the artistic mandate and the artistic direction of a theater. That way it might work. But I, who would do that? You'd have to really have somebody who's not an ongoing theater but somebody who's more a presenting organization, which the Joyce is in some way.
0: You, as we established at the beginning in 1990, took the position with what you quickly named New 42nd Street. Um, The revitalization of those theaters, how much of your job was lobbying the city, the state, the federal government, how much of it was lobbying people who might actually want to do something with those spaces?
1: I think lobbying never entered my mind or my day-to-day activity.
0: And I don't um, mean lobbying uh, in, the cl- in the sense of a Washington lobby. We didn't have Washington to persuade lobbyist. anybody. We, hmm. we,
1: we were dealing with a very unique set of people in the city and the state at that time. They were extremely – I mean, I use the word enlightened to describe them because they really gave us. We, 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 we leased these seven or eight spaces for $10 a year. Hmm. So here's $10 a year. Here's $18.2 million from the developer of the office buildings on the corner, whether the office buildings go up or not, to be used for nonprofit, for the renovation of two of the theaters for nonprofit. Use two of the spaces for nonprofit use, so you can't use any of that money for operating. But if you find a tenant who's nonprofit, um, here's up to eighteen point two million for two spaces. We require you to have two nonprofit entities on this block. That was what we were handed. So find new uses. Two of them have to be nonprofit, and here's money to renovate these, you know, downtrodden, blighted, sad old theaters that you deal with while we deal with the corners. We, as public entities, deal with the corners. So we were handed a blank slate in terms of what we had to do other than the two nonprofits, enough money to renovate two nonprofits, no money to operate, and a real estate market that had collapsed. And we looked at the block and we said, we can't responsibly encourage any nonprofit even though we have money to renovate, to come here and be alone on this block with it's still 87 adult uses on the block and because the only a portion of the block had been condemned at that point, hmm. only about half of the block. And so we said, well, why don't we think of something that we can do so we're the responsible party, hence something the board said that nobody else is doing in town and doing well so we don't replicate another nonprofit cultural activity And why don't we think of something? And one of the things, we came up with four or five models and presented them to our brave and courageous and marvelous board. We constantly say we have the best board in New York City, board of directors. And the board looked at the possible uses, including a theater for kids and families, and said, that's it. That's it. And there was a board meeting in our former offices in the old McGraw-Hill building, and... um, Well, I can say her name now. One of our board members was an ex-officio member of our board who was the head of the New York State Council on the Arts, the one with the gorgeous legs, Kitty Carlisle Hart. And Kitty said at that meeting, why, who would bring their children to 42nd Street? Well, that was was going to be my question. question. Uh, Well, Kitty was there 20 years ago or 15 years ago or 16, 17 years ago. And four or five members of the board, those with children said, I would if there was something good to see. And by the time we voted, Kitty, although she was ex-officio, voted unanimously with the rest of the board for a theater for children in the victory, which we said nobody else would want. So the victory, which was built in 1900 by Oscar Hammerstein the I, the grandfather of the lyricist, became a kind of focus for us and became ultimately almost a symbol of the street really being reinvented and revitalized because the victory opened uh, as a theater for kids, with very low ticket prices, and we said that if we were lucky, we would rent our other theaters out ultimately so that the rent revenues from potential unknown to us at that time completely, because this was now 92 that we were talking about a Theater for Kids, 93, um, that potentially if we were lucky, and of course you forge your luck, uh, that the the rents from the potential tenants in the other theaters like the Empire or the Liberty or the Selwyn or the Lyric or the Times Square, um, would support, help support the victory. And the reason there are no theaters for kids is they make no sense economically. The victory today is 72% subsidized, Hmm. 72% subsidized. That is not the equation anybody wants. You don't ever want much more than – 40, 50, 60 at worst, because then you have to, you know, subsidy. That's a lot of subsidy. Actually, you really like 60% earned, is sort of the formula, which I don't particularly believe in, and and uh, 40%, con- you know, contributed.
0: I want to come back to the programming of The Victory actually to wrap up. That opened when,
1: though? The Victory opened on December eleventh, 1995.
0: And followed by the Ford Center or the New Am?
1: The New Amsterdam opened in October, 18 months later. I think it was October of 97. With Lion King? No.
0: Oh, with them, the King uh, David That's right, the King Oratorio. David Oratorio first.
1: Now, you may, you're really testing me here because you're making me remember <laughs> not only this, but the American <laughs> Theater Exchange and also went, where did I dance and where did I start from? So um, I'm doing pretty well so far. But that's what happened October – that was a big opening. The theater, of course, was gorgeous. The um, uh, the Ford Center opened with Ragtime. The previews began in December, I think, of ninety eight. Um, no, actually, well, maybe well, ninety seven. Ninety seven. Ninety seven. And, and Lion King opened. Just, within months. Just May, yeah. of, May of 98. Mm-hmm. May of 98. I'm pretty so, sure I'm right about that. You, so there, this is testing me, but it, I think it, I'm right about okay. that. It's okay. No one's going to write their I'm term paper
0: right. on this for solely, solely from this conversation. But so suddenly that end of 42nd Street
1: has real
0: a anchor yeah. uh, weight to it. And then it was 2000 when – Roundabout opened what had been the Selwyn as the American Airlines, the two thousand or two thousand one.
1: It might have been even ninety nine. <clears>
0: so yeah. right in right in 99. there, which then gave you a, a stretch of of the street.
1: It's actually probably um, maybe two thousand one when they opened our building. Actually, the studio's building, well, which they built, is my next opened on June twenty first two thousand. You also, in the midst of all
0: of this renovation of classic theaters that return to the century, New 42nd Street undertook to build these studios which are in a way your version of what 890 once was in the sense that it has rehearsal spaces, it has office spaces. Um, Why why did you choose to take on new construction as part of New 42nd Street, not – find someone else who was going to do that.
1: Well, as I said earlier, guilelessness and naivety serve. And actually, 890 was more of a hodgepodge. The new 42nd Street Studios with the theater it has in it called the Duke on 42nd Street and offices for nonprofit uh, organizations is a – since we could start from the ground up in every sense of the word – physically in terms of the building and also in conceptually in terms of what would it be um, is pure because it really is a rental space. There are no permanent tenants. There's no costume shop. There's no mm-hmm. designers in there. Um, but
0: um, but we, put we, really we wanna, high we, quality space we, for state of the art th- rehearsal yeah.
1: studios and everybody wants to rehearse there and it has very it's very interesting how that building works actually. Um, it's a wonderful model of for-profit commercial helping to support nonprofit artistic companies. You know, the commercial Broadway shows pay top dollar and the nonprofits are paying very subsidized rents for the same spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have – and we have favored nations. The studio is this big, your commercial, you pay this much. The studio is this much smaller, your commercial, you pay this much. The studio is this big and your nonprofit you pay that much. And so uh, the building is predominantly used by nonprofits. Uh, It has offices and homes for several nonprofit dance and theater companies. And um, the building is basically on an operational basis self-sufficient. It's got a PAX Whole Foods on the first floor, which helps the building. Mm -hmm. It's part of the revenue stream into the building. And actually the roundabout lobby for the American Airlines Theater is in our building. You have to go the, – the whole front lobby from 42nd Street is in the new 42nd Street Studios building, hmm. which is an 84,000-square-foot building that we built for just under $35 million and opened on June 21st, 2000. Hmm. So it's now just a little over 10 years old and fully occupied most of the time.
0: You operate the studios – you run the New Victory Theater.
1: We run, manage, and operate the New Victory Theater and a marvelous and extensive education program, which is probably in 150 schools with 30,000 pub- public school kids coming to the theater, free in classroom workshops. I think there were 850 free in classroom workshops taught by professional teaching artists that we train. Um, in all arts disciplines, so there's a big, wonderful, informed, very healthy uh, education program that comes out of the victory. You no, know, so we're busy. We're a real estate company, but that's not that's not our DNA. Our DNA is nonprofit. Why did you be build the studio building? Because because we could because we could serve artists. It says on the face of the studio building on 42nd Street dedicated to the performing artists of the 20th and 21st centuries and to the spells they cast. That's why we built the building, so people could sweat and cry and bleed in a clean, safe, warm when you want to be warm, cool when you want to be cool, place with good showers, good dressing rooms, good mirrors, good lighting.
0: The choice to actually operate one of the theaters as you say, was filling a need. It's not unlike the concept of the Joyce, except for being for dance. It's no, for it children's is, it theater. is very
1: much unlike. It's very much unlike. It is. It's unlike I it's got not the like. sense
0: that much of what comes into the New Victory is curated. It's work that companies internationally are doing and would not likely find a home except perhaps for a day or two at a festival. Um, Otherwise, were it not for this venue?
1: It's different from the Joyce in that the Joyce is not predominantly a presenting house. It's a rental house predominantly. Mm -hmm. It began to present a little bit uh, to fill in some voids. The Victory is completely a presentation house. um, And so it's different. It it, It serves the kids and the families in the first instance, not the art form. Mm -hmm. The Joyce serves the dance companies. That's where it starts from and that's where it should finish. And the audience who comes to see those dance companies is not the – it's not the impetus for the Joyce. The Joyce was serve dance. This was New York City is a theater capital. We're not enthralling our kids – with the love of the theater from an early age, these young people will end up being the citizens making decisions about the city in years to come. We want them to love going to see theater, dance, new vaudeville, music, opera, hip-hop, puppetry, you name it. We want them to have this experience of the magic of a curtain coming up and being taken into another part of yourself by what's happening on the stage. That's so different.
0: I I understand the per, certainly the I'm perspective. I'm happy to argue with you No, about it. It, it's fine because again, looking at it from outside, it seems the the outsider effect is that each brings companies in or, or becomes a home to companies but both – The economic process and the conceptual process behind it is what's really so different.
1: It's also different in that the Joyce doesn't curate by seeing the work and then bringing it. They book it. They book it and they make choices. But basically it's supposedly not making judgments in terms of the work but trying to serve the companies who want to be there.
0: So tell me about making judgments about the appropriate – and Whether we say children's theater or theater for families and, and certain shows have, have, have different constituencies. But in America, unfortunately, an awful lot of children's theater is adaptations of fairy tales over and over and over again. That's not the programming at the New Victory to, to say the least. Um, how, what is the process by which you're finding – these companies and this work?
1: Uh, Well, the process is now quite uh, refined in that we have a remarkable woman who's in charge of the programming for the new victory, Mary Rose Lloyd. She was Mary Rose and she met Derek Lloyd when he came with the company from Australia and they got married. So now she's Mary Rose Lloyd and she's been with us for, I think 11 or 12 years and she didn't start out in programming, but she was around when the earlier person was here programming the theater. And she now is very familiar with what's happening internationally and nationally and locally. Uh, she has a very small staff, and some of us sometimes join her. I went to the Edinburgh Festival summer before last to see a lot of the work that Mary brought, uh, was was recommending to us. Uh, some of it I saw before she did, and we brought some uh, work from Belgium that was considered to be very, very risky. Um, uh, once and for all, we're going to tell you everything you want to know, so sit down and – and and listen something like it was very close that was the title (laughs) and it was very bold young teenagers from belgium performing in english we brought it to the duke because we do teenage work that's sometimes very provocative uh for young people who are teenagers in the smaller venue of the duke theater on 42nd street and um so the work we shun saccharine fairy tales if we're going to do a fairy tale, it'll be the Grimm's tale from from uh, um, the uh, uh, young Vic, uh, or yeah, the young Vic. And when we do fairy tales, they'll do Cinderella. And when the eye comes out, it's gory and hanging with stuff. And the, when the heel is bitten, or well, she tries to get into the slipper. It bleeds. You know, it's we 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 eschew um, the sugar coated as I said, saccharine fairy tale. So the work is usually compelling because it's fun or compelling because it's provocative or compelling because it's simply magical. Well,
0: I'm sitting here look, with look your at brochure. The, look at Puss in Boots. Here you have Puss in Boots, which on the face of it would be the stereotypical children's theater. It won't be. But you're doing it in collaboration with, among others, the Tectonic Theater Project, and Moises Kaufman is going to direct
1: this. And it's going to have phenomenal puppets and beautiful singers. <laughs> And we're doing it in Spanish a couple of times,
0: which is you know. So, so, and I'm flipping through here. Companies from Edmonton, Canada, uh, London, and Venice. Um, you have um, the company Mayumina from, from Tel Isle. Aviv, which previously played a commercial gig down at the Manetta Lane, I believe. Yeah,
1: I think it was. Um, uh, yeah,
0: you know, a couple of seasons ago. Now you're bringing them in. It's it's pretty remarkable, you know. The, the diversity of what's out there. And do people come now simply because they trust the brand of what's at the New Victory? Because they're not they don't know these titles. They often don't know these Companies, companies. are unknown. Yeah.
1: Generally generally unknown. I mean if you you know if you brought Bill Irwin in people would know who it was. But most of these companies, I mean that that, that Skellig yeah. Uh, is selling very, very well because people seem to know the book it's based on. In London, it was huge because the book is a bestseller. But I I thought it was going to have trouble here and it's selling very well.
0: Well, Skellig was um, a show that – I heard have spoken in the same breath as Corumboy which was a huge hit in England yes, not, so not so much so here, here yeah. and Warhorse which we're going to be seeing yes, sure. um, later this season so Skellig's right mm. in that
1: same groove it's it's pretty fascinating I didn't know that but now I'm finding out that seems to be known I think we we try to find work that um, that might not even be intended for kids you know, if we had seen Blue Man Group 400 years ago when those young men started out, we would have said, yeah, yeah, that's right for us. You know, um, so we try to find things that uh, – and we we succeed to a pretty good extent that you might not think of necessarily as kids' stuff. You know, even Circus Oz, which we brought a few times from Australia, it's kind of a – you know, it's it's kind of – doesn't fit into the circus mold, although now people are so familiar with Circus Oz, they kind of expect the humor, they expect the surprises, they expect the charming performances and the verbal play uh, that you get with Circus Oz, where even the years ago, years ago, the Karamazov brothers.
0: Using a phrase, as you do in your brochure, of uh, being New York's theater for kids and families, given – the, at times, extremely adventurous nature and extremely progressive nature of some of the artists who are involved in this work, does that pigeonhole you in a way that actually doesn't get people in to see the work if their children are older or they don't have children, even though its theatrical credentials are as strong as as so much of what else you would see in the city?
1: There is a concern that we lose the kids' Um, as soon as they get a pimple, <laughs> it's my it's my my terminology. Nobody else would dare say this. That's not in the brochure. <laughs> you know, yeah. in the, there is that concern, and we now because we have the Duke, we try to find work both for very young kids. I mean, there's a couple of places in there for you know. I think you know, maybe even one and up. I think there might be um, and. Uh, but we try to find things that are for thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen-year-olds that the general population doesn't come to in the victory that will do in the Duke. And I think the the nearly Lear, the one-woman Lear, is probably more for a twelve and up. Actually, Puss in Boots is not really for young kids. It's really for a slightly older audience. Uh, but the, the problem there is the Puss in Boots title and try to get a teenager to come see Puss in Boots. Probably not going to be so easy, although it's selling pretty well too. And it has so many good people involved.
0: Many people comment on the fact that especially since the change in Times Square, in 42nd Street, Broadway has moved in the direction of more family entertainment. Yeah. Has that posed a challenge for you at the new victory, which obviously you simply can't work, even with all of the subsidy you've already spoken about, you can't work at the scale when you're competing with Lion King and Mary Poppins and Wicked, for example.
1: Well, Wicked is a teenage girl's you know, favorite show. Well, uh, you kind say that intent. to David
0: Stone, he'll get very upset with oh, you sure and say would. it is yeah, yeah. a show for everyone.
1: But it is a show for everyone. But that's where the where those girls really want to go to. It, but I don't want to dwell on that. Um, no, we can't compete with Broadway, and you're right that not only is Broadway doing more family entertainment because you'll go see families at Adams Family, you'll see kids at Adams Absolutely. Family. Absolutely. Um, and I'll see people carrying their children on, in their arms going to Lion King. At least when it was on Forty Second Street, I'd be, they were paying at that time $110 for a ticket. Now it's probably $135. Carrying a child who had couldn't even really sit up, probably you know, for the two and a half hours. But indeed. Not only has Broadway begun to do more family, but so have has everybody else. So there are more children's performances in other venues in the city. And um, we think the Victory has had something to do with this, not only locally, but nationally. So you'll see theater companies that are regional, professional, doing more family programming and, and sometimes more challenging stuff the way the Victory does. So, you know, we really sometimes have quite challenging work on the stage. Uh, And it's, it's, yes, it is our calling card to some extent, and maybe some people who would look for a more mainstream family place don't come, but that's okay with us because we're not going to pander for a moment to the children in New York who we think are smart and sophisticated, in the best sense of the word, sophisticated, and want to be engaged... On on levels that are not yucky, s- sweet, and silly. So to to wrap up,
0: New Forty Second Street began with the goal of cleaning up Forty Second Street, finding and tenants reclaiming for the, it, the th- it, finding, and tenants, finding tenants for the We didn't
1: theaters. have to run anything.
0: All right. Forty Second Street is now part of a tourist mecca. The new victory has paved the way for. Real quality children's theater work and as you've just said, even set an example that's being taken up around the country. The studios are a model that works and serves both the commercial community and the not-for-profit community. What worlds are left for New 42nd Street to conquer?
1: Well, I know the answer to the question. We always say – what are we doing that we can do better? Because the moment you get satisfied, the moment you say we've got it now, we know what we're doing and we it's just you know, it's just all rosy never. There's a thing that maybe I inherited from the modern dance world of divine dissatisfaction. And so we live always with divine dissatisfaction looking over our shoulder saying, "What could we be doing better?" And what else can we do? And what more can we do that enhances or enriches, you know, all those E-N words, uh, the programs and the activities we've undertaken? And how can we spend the limited resources we have well to do the things we do? So it's not any big thing. It's what else and how can we do what we're doing better?
0: Is there anything else on the horizon that you've defined?
1: Well, we – Just the last six words I called out over my shoulder to uh, a couple of people, to Lisa Post, who is the uh, executive vice president of the new 42nd Street, and then to Mary Rose Lloyd as I was going out the door because she sits near my office and we have a very open office. And I said, you know, someday we're going to be able to commission at least workshop works for kids. And someday maybe we'll even have summer programming in the New Victory. And I have to run to do this podcast. So (laughs) I was having ideas on my way over here about what more we can do, what else we can do. And maybe we can find a way to commission works that we then look at with other nonprofit theaters for young people and families.
0: Sounds terrific. This is absolutely fascinating. Cora Kahn, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center.
1: Thank you for having me here. I've had a very good time.
0: Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.